Uh, I am delighted to see all of y'all here, and we will see if we make it all the way through this chapter tonight or not. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff in here. Uh, but before we get started, let's begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this chance to be able to gather together in your name. We thank you for this book and for C.S. Lewis and for the wisdom that's rooted in your word that we find in this book. Lord, we pray that you would help us to put aside all the things that have distracted or preoccupied us during the day and that you would help us to listen to what your spirit might desire to speak to us this evening. Lord, we pray that you would guide us and that you would use this time to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, there is a wonderful piece of music tonight uh, that is once again somewhat obscure, but there ought to be at least a couple of people in here that will perhaps recognize this. So, if you think you know what it is, give me a shout out. We're going to let it play for a little while because the first part is pretty quiet. about to get a lot louder, so watch out, <laughs> unless Mark turns it down. seeing any takers on this. All right, it is very difficult for me not to just play that whole thing because it is so gorgeous. But that is a piece that the St. Philip's Children's Choir actually sang in the Canterbury Festival uh, about 10 years ago. It's by a composer named Dan Forrest, and he had the good sense to go uh, to a very trustworthy source for his lyric. And the lyric comes from Psalm 8. Uh, so it is called Adonai Adonai And then it goes on into the English, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And then goes on to talk about man and being a little bit lower than the angels, but crowned with glory and honor. It is absolutely beautiful. So when I send the email out, please listen to it. Uh, so, let's say our verse together. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we will hear more about some of the themes that are in that verse tonight. So just a word of welcome to anyone who is new, uh, whether you are here in person or on the live stream or on the podcast, we're delighted to have you. Uh, as I've said before, if you've been here, there are three ways to do this class. You can be on the beach, which means you just show up when you feel like it and do nothing else. Or you can snorkel, pay attention, and read on the parts that you like and find interesting. Or you can scuba dive and follow all of the links and everything else. Uh, which is one of the reasons that if you're not on the class email list, uh, I would love for you to do that. Because I send out a summary and resources uh, every week. Uh, if you are online and in a different city or a different country, uh, please Google St. Philip's Church, Charleston, South Carolina, USA, and uh, just go right on our website and you can email me and I'll get you added to the list. So I've also mentioned this is a book where it is fine to read ahead, but you're going to find we're going to go at a very deliberate pace because there's so much packed in here that if you get excited about just what's going on in the story, you will miss a lot of the wonder that's in this book. So we talked about part of what makes this a work of genius is the fact that it is operating simultaneously on three different levels. This book is a marvelous capstone that draws all of the Narnia children's story series together. It is also a profound reflection on the sin of Eden, the means of grace and the glory of heaven, and it is also a parable about following Jesus that seems eerily relevant to 21st century America and the whole idea of the importance of word and truth. So uh, we talked about Lewis and the inklings and the power of story that they are writing these stories to try to help people engage with profound theological truth. And there is a great quotation um, from Andrew Peterson, who some of y'all may know of, uh, that runs The Rabbit Room and uh, wrote the Wing Feather books and all of that. And he says, if you want to tell someone the truth and you want them to know the truth, you need to just tell the truth to them. But if you want them to love the truth, you need to tell them a story that will show them that truth. And Lewis and Tolkien really believed that. So we talked about in the first chapter by Cauldron Poole that we're here in the last days of Narnia, uh, and we have only two characters at the beginning, Shift, the ape, and Puzzle, the donkey. Uh, apes being clever and mischievous, uh, this whole idea that Lewis keeps coming back to that modern man is going backwards, and we are becoming more and more like apes and trading away our humanity. And Mr. Beaver, one of the great characters in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, had this caution. And he says, take my advice. When you meet anything that's going to be human and isn't yet, or used to be human once and isn't now, or ought to be human and isn't, you keep your eyes on it and feel for your hatchet. And we will see tonight uh, what the ape does. And then we also talked about donkeys, and that the donkey is uh, an interesting beast in the scriptures, that we have the donkey being 
the honored beast that bears Mary with Jesus in her womb into Bethlehem. And then the donkey, that humble beast, bearing Jesus into Jerusalem to meet his death on the cross for our salvation. And then the remarkable story of Balaam's ass in Numbers 22, where the donkey is the only one in the whole place that can perceive spiritual truth. So Lewis is going to play with that. There are also a lot of parallels with Genesis 3, the whole story of the temptation and the fall uh, that we're going to see. And there are a lot of themes um, in these chapters that I'm not going to go over that are um, all in the email. But these themes are things that are so relevant right now in our culture. So chapter 2, we meet some more characters, King Tyrion, uh, who is the young king of Narnia in his early 20s. Uh, we meet while he is trying to rest in his hunting retreat, accompanied by his best friend, Jewel the Unicorn. And this is, again, somewhere where Lewis is playing into the symbolism of unicorns. Lewis was a medievalist at heart. He loved the medieval period and worldview. And unicorns were magical, mystical figures for the people in the medieval period. And it was believed that the only way to tame a unicorn was to somehow get the unicorn to come and lay its head in the lap of a pure virgin. And that moved to the unicorn being associated with the Virgin Mary, and from that to the unicorn being uh, very closely associated with the incarnation and being a Christ figure. So the fact that the best friend here is a unicorn uh, is not an accident. Um, we also, in last week's chapter, saw the wanton felling of trees and how Lewis and Tolkien were both huge uh, advocates for nature and for trees and reclaiming the biblical understanding in the book of Genesis that we are to be stewards of this earth and that God created the earth and everything in it and said that it was good and that we are to tend that garden. And the saddest thing that some of y'all sent me right after we had that class, probably one of the two or three most famous trees in England was cut down by a teenage vandal. So sad. Uh, and I love this quotation from Tolkien. He said, every tree has its enemy. Few have an advocate. In all my works, I take the part of trees against their enemies. And when you read this last chapter, one of the things that's so sad is that it starts off in this place of great hope and expectation because there's this rumor that Aslan, the great lion, the one who is the symbol of Jesus in this culture, that he has finally returned to Narnia after being absent for thousands of years. And Tyrion and Jewel's hearts are full of joy and excitement. And then it turns to horror and sadness because they hear that Aslan has come back, but he's ordering all of this evil to be done. And so they're very confused, don't know what to do. And at the last part of the chapter, um, they rise up and do something rash that is going to have bad consequences in the future. So that brings us to chapter three, the ape in its glory. Now, if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, uh, you will probably know 
that Lewis has lots of quotations about pride and lots of quotations about humility. And one of those is good and the other is bad. And Lewis, uh, I think consonant with the scripture says, pride is the root of all sin. And here the ape and its glory is just such a demonstration of the sin of pride. And the setting, and again, Lewis never does anything by accident. The setting here, when the king comes and turns himself in, and we'll get to that in a minute, the place where the ape is, is a stable in a clearing. Now, if you think about stables in the Bible, what do you think of? Jesus and Bethlehem. That's exactly what you're supposed to think of. And this whole idea of the stable is going to be throughout this whole book and what the stable means and, well, okay, I'll just not go there yet. We'll get there. Um, so the ape in this scene is holding court and he is dressed up in these ridiculous clothes that he's stolen. He has a crown that's like a... Um, Boxing Day crown in the UK, it's like one of those paper ones that comes out of a cracker. So he's wearing that, he's got a red coat made out of velvet that he stole off of a dwarf, and he's got some pointed shoes that he's trying to wear on his back paws, and if you know about apes, his back paws are really more like hands, so they're not like feet. So putting shoes on them, the shoes don't fit, so they just fall off all the time. And the ape, declares right away that he is the mouthpiece for Aslan and that any request made to Aslan or anything that Aslan is going to say is going to come through this ape. So hold on to that thought. Um, and just uh, a word, the handout tonight, even if you're on the beach, this is a really short handout. One page. Yes, you're welcome. One page, uh, easy to read, but makes some really strong points. So I commend that to you. So one of the things you'll see if you read this chapter and you haven't read the rest of the Narnia series, you will see that all of a sudden there's this, all this talk about calorman and calormines. And you may think, what is that? Is that like calamine lotion for poison ivy? Uh, no, it is not. So we're going to do a little expedition into the country of calormen. So Kellerman is a large country, mythical, don't go look for it on your globe at home because it's not there. It's a mythical country separated from Narnia by the country of Arkenland and a vast desert. The inhabitants of Kellerman are called Kellermines, and the border of that empire goes from the western mountains to the great eastern ocean. The Kellermine capital is Tashban, which is a big walled city on an island hill near the desert on a river. And the inhabitants we first read about in the voyage of the Dawn Treader. And Lewis describes them as having dark faces and long beards. They wear flowing robes and orange-colored turbans. And they are a wise, wealthy, courteous, cruel, and ancient people. Slavery and slave trading are central to the economy of Kellerman. Remember, our verse is about freedom. Lewis paints the culture of Kellerman as being Middle Eastern. It's a mixture of ancient Persian, Moorish Indian, and Ottoman Turkish customs. There are flowing robes, turbans, and pointed wooden shoes, 
and lots of scimitars waving around whenever there are calormines in the picture. They have lavish palaces uh, all over the city of Tashban, and Tashban is ornate to the point of ostentation. It's very showy wealth, showy carriages, showy clothes, and a huge division between the rich aristocrats and the slaves. So the aristocracy of Kellerman are very obsessed with the idea of honor and precedent, and they speak in maxims and quote poets. Uh, they believe in venerating their elders, absolute deference to power. Power and wealth determine class and social standing. Slavery is normal. Narnians hold Kellermines in disdain for their treatment of animals and for their treatment of their slaves. On the other hand, the Calermines called the Narnians barbarians. The ruler of Calermen is called the Tisroch, and he is believed to be descended in a direct line from their god, Tash, who is this horrible-looking creature idol that has the head of a giant vulture and then multiple arms that flap around and it makes this squawking noise and has human sacrifice. Sounds lovely. Uh, and whenever Calermines mention the name of the Tisroc, they always say, may he live forever. Ranking right below the Tisroc are his sons, a grand vizier, and then the nobility. And those in the nobility are addressed as Tarkan for males and Tarkina for females. So now you know everything you need to know about that. Um, calor is from the Latin word for hot, um, and it's the idea of hot, desert-like, uh, all of that. But one of the things that's very strange is all of these calormines are all over the place where this ape is. And that is very peculiar, because if you've read the other Narnian things, there's some trade with the calormines, but they don't like each other at all, the Narnians and the calormines. So, we see first this passage uh, where the king is going to make a fateful decision. So here's a quotation. Calormines, mixed with a few talking beasts, were beginning to run toward King Tyrion and Jewel from every direction. The two dead men, the ones that Tyrion and Jewel had killed, had died without a cry, and so it had taken a moment before the rest of the crowd knew what had happened. But now they did. Most of them had naked scimitars in their hands. Quick, on my back, said Jewel. The king flung himself astride of his old friend, who turned and galloped away. He changed direction twice or thrice, as soon as they were out of sight of their enemies, crossed a stream, and shouted without slackening his pace, Whither away, sire, to cure Paravel? Hold hard, friend, said Tyrion, let me off. He slid off the unicorn's back and faced him. Jewel, said the king, we have done a dreadful deed. We were sorely provoked, said Jewel, but to leap on them unawares without defying them while they were unarmed, faw. We are two murderers, Jewel. I am dishonored forever. Jewel drooped his head. He too was ashamed. So we see here the interplay of sin and remorse and repentance. The interesting thing here is to note the tender conscience and heart of the king, that no one has forced him to this realization. It is the reflecting back on his own conduct in trying to 
free this horse that was being enslaved and lashing out and killing these two men. His reflecting back on his own conduct, he knows that his conduct was not honorable. And he knows that something must be done about that. This is not the sort of morality that you see in our culture where if you don't get caught, it doesn't matter. Uh, this is very much in line with the scriptures. So a couple of scripture passages. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, from Psalm 73. See, O Lord, for I am in distress. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. In the street the sword slays, and the house it is like death, from Lamentations. And then St. Paul in Corinthians, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And then from Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And there is much, we could spend a long time right here, which we're not going to do, but one of the things I just want to point out here is that we are in a place in our culture, even in the church, where we don't want to admit that there's such a thing as sin or that there's such a thing as wrong or evil. We just believe that we need to be affirmed in whatever we do. And the problem with that is that, just as Proverbs said, that way that seems right to a man, the end of that way is death. And part of what I think Lewis is trying to show us here is Tyrion, even as a very young king, just a young man in his 20s, that his heart is tender toward Aslan and the things of Aslan's kingdom, and that he is convicted, and he's not blaming anyone else. Now, blaming, I don't want to say it is just in our present day, because it really goes all the way back to Genesis 3, when God says, what is it that you have done to Eve? And Eve says, the serpent beguiled me. And then they go on, and then he speaks to Adam. And Adam says, well, the woman you gave me, she made me do this. So no one is standing up and saying, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I will take the consequences. Please forgive me. I repent. Now, that is what our culture needs a good dose of. All right, I will stop preaching. All right, so the next theme that we see is faith that is in vain. Having faith in something that cannot hold the weight of it. And then, said the king, the horse said it was by Aslan's orders. The horse that had been enslaved said that he had been enslaved by Aslan's orders, which is, if you've read the Narnia stories, is so contrary to anything you would ever have thought Aslan would do. The rat said the same. They all say Aslan is here, but if it were true, but sire, how could Aslan be commanding such dreadful things? He is not a tame lion, said Tyrion. How should we know what he would do? We who are murderers, Jewel, I will go back. I will give up my sword and put myself 
in the hands of these calamines and ask that they bring me before Aslan. Let him do justice to me. You will go to your death then, said Jewel. Do you think I care if Aslan dooms me to death, said the king? That would be nothing, nothing at all. Would it not be better to be dead than to have this horrible fear that Aslan has come and is not like the Aslan we have believed in and longed for? It is as if the sun rose one day and were a black sun. I know, said Jewel, or as if you drank water and it were dry water. You are in the right, sire. This is the end of all things. Let us go and give ourselves up. And this is that whole idea of when you get to the place in a culture where evil is called good and good is called evil and where truth is, uh, as the old hymn says, sacrificed on the scaffold, uh, you are not in a good place. And this passage from 1 Corinthians captures just the sort of mood that Lewis is talking about. And this is St. Paul. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, of course, Paul goes on right after that to say, but Christ has been raised, and so we are of all people the ones who are to be most joyful. But imagine the despair of those disciples when Jesus is put to death on the cross, and they don't really understand about the crucifixion and the resurrection and all of that. Everything they've given their lives to everything they gave away what they were doing to follow Jesus, and it's ended in an ugly, horrible death on the cross. That is where Tyrion and Jewel are right at this moment. But there's something beautiful right in the midst of this. Lewis always injects beauty even in the midst of darkness. So right after that conversation about turning themselves in, uh, Tyrion says, there's no need for both of us to go. If we ever loved one another, let me go with you now, said the unicorn. If you are dead, and if Aslan is not Aslan, what life is left for me? They turned and walked back together, shedding bitter tears. And if you've read the other stories, you'll know that there's this long and deep, uh, beautiful friendship between Jewel and Tyrion. And this kind of friendship is something that you see in the scriptures modeled over and over again that we have just lost in our culture where friend is used for people that uh, follow us on social media. That is not what friendship is. Friendship is about loyalty and self-sacrifice and deep love. 
and the scriptures tell us that. And one of the things the church needs to do is to get out there with the real vision of what biblical friendship is because people are dying of loneliness. So from Proverbs, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And then Jesus right at the time of the Last Supper, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then, of course, Jesus did exactly that. And this is not some men's encounter group or a psych ward or anything like that. These are Jesus's rough around the edges disciples, fishermen, tax collectors, um, regular guys that Jesus is telling them to love one another and to give up their lives for one another. And then this beautiful passage about David and Jonathan in 2 Samuel, when Jonathan has died partially um, trying to defend David. Oh, my dear brother Jonathan, I am crushed by your death. Your friendship was a miracle wonder, love far exceeding anything I've ever known or ever hoped to know. And that theme of true friendship and the blessing and power of it is going to show up over and over again in the story. But then back to the dark side. Lies, selfishness, greed, and oppression. Aren't you glad you came? As soon as they came to the place where the work was going on, the Calamines raised a cry and came toward Tyrion and Jewel with their weapons in hand. But the king held out his sword with the hilt toward them and said, I, who was king of Narnia and am now a dishonored knight, give myself up to the justice of Aslan. Bring me before him. So Tyrion has just utterly surrendered with no fight or anything. But look what happens next. O oh, Lord Shift, mouthpiece of Aslan, said the chief Calermine, we bring you prisoners by our skill and courage and by the permission of the great god Tash, we have taken alive these two desperate murderers by our skill and courage? Really? Give me that man's sword, said the ape. So they took the king's sword and handed it with the sword belt and all to the monkey. And he hung it around his own neck, and it made him look sillier than ever. We'll see about those two later, said the ape, spitting out a shell in the direction of two prisoners. I got some other business first. They can wait. Now listen to me, everyone. The first thing I want to say is about nuts. Where's that head squirrel got to? Here, sir, said a red squirrel coming forward, making a nervous little bow. Oh, you are, are you, said the ape with a nasty look. Now attend to me. I want, I mean... Aslan wants some more nuts. These you've brought aren't anything near enough. You must bring some more, do you hear? Twice as many. And they've got to be here by sunset tomorrow. And there mustn't be any bad ones or any small ones among them. So we've got lying going on about how these prisoners came. We've got major selfishness on the part of Shift. We've got greed on the part of Chef because the squirrels have already emptied all of their stores of nuts for the winter and brought all of them to him already. And then we've got oppression where he is threatening the squirrel. And one of the things that is 
really interesting here is you see how when people's passions get out of control, their priorities get utterly out of whack. Something incredible has just happened where the king of Narnia has surrendered into their hands and all he can talk about is getting more nuts. I'm not saying anything about politics, but uh, from Proverbs, an honest witness does not deceive, but a false witness pours out lies. A fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a deadly snare. And then this great passage from Philippians. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then this great verse from Proverbs, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. And then from Malachi, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Truth matters to God. Truth matters in Aslan's kingdom. Truth matters in the kingdom of God. Oppressing people matters. All of these things, and the, one of the things you'll notice in this story, and particularly in this chapter, if you give it a close reading, is look at the difference in the personalities and the priorities of the ape and the Calermines and their side and the Narnians on the other side. Look at the difference in the way they speak to and about each other. It is night and day, the difference. Deceit and discernment. The head squirrel plucked up courage to say, please, would Aslan himself speak to us about it? If we might be allowed to see him. Now that was a brave thing to do. Because remember the squirrel, even though he's a talking squirrel, the talking squirrel is a little guy. And the ape is a big guy. And the ape has no hesitation about sort of the cartoonish slogan, off with their heads. So he's risking his life to speak up like this. And he asked for Aslan to speak because they don't understand. How can this be? So the ape's response after the squirrel says, if we might be allowed to see him, well, you won't, said the ape. He may be very kind, though it's a lot more than most of you deserve, and come out for a few minutes tonight. Then you can all have a look at him but he will not have you all crowding around him and pestering him with questions. Anything you want to say to him will be passed on through me if I think it's worth bothering him about. In the meantime, all you squirrels had better go and see about the nuts 
and make sure they're here by tomorrow evening or you'll catch it. The poor squirrels all scampered away as if a dog were after them. This new order was terrible news for them. The nuts they had carefully hoarded for the winter had nearly all been eaten by now, and of the few that were left, they had already given the ape far more than they could spare. Then a deep voice, it belonged to a great tusked and shaggy boar, spoke from another part of the crowd. But why can't we see Aslan properly and talk to him, it said. When he used to appear in Narnia in the old days, everyone could talk to him face to face. Don't you believe it, said the ape. And even if it was true, times have changed. Aslan says he's been far too soft with you before, do you see? Well, he isn't going to be soft anymore. He's going to lick you into shape this time. He'll teach you to think he's a tame lion. A low moaning and whimpering was heard among the beast, and after that, a dead silence, which was more miserable still. And what you see here is these Narnians trying to act on the knowledge that they have about Aslan, the knowledge that has been told them and passed down in the stories and in the experiences of others who knew Aslan. And yet, they're being told over and over, don't believe that, that's not true. You can't trust that. Instead, listen to me. I'm in charge. I'm modern. All of those kinds of things, which might sound familiar. Uh, some scripture verses. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. And then this passage from Isaiah that is so relevant to this story. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for better. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. There is a great word for us, I think, in the story and in these scripture verses because it is so easy when we are inundated with all of these messages from all sorts of self-proclaimed experts today to be sort of overwhelmed and unable to discern truth from falsehood. But there's great wisdom in these scriptures to remember that Jesus doesn't change. Jesus has not changed. The revelation of Jesus and the word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when people start claiming that they have new knowledge and Jesus actually thought this, that is the definition of a false prophet. Uh, and all of this about discerning and testing the spirits, the way we do that is through the revelation of the word of God, that we test things against the scriptures. But this is where we have to testify against ourselves and be like Tyrion and say, I am a dishonored knight, because most of us um, are like that old, there was an old sitcom in the 60s, I can't remember which one it was, it might have been Green Acres, where in one episode they talk about the Bible, and they say the Bible is right there where we keep it in a place of honor, it sits on top of the TV and we dust it off once a week. And 
unfortunately, that is the relationship that a lot of us can fall into with the Bible, that we don't know the Word of God. And if you don't know the Word of God, how can you possibly test whether something is in accord with it or not? So it is a, a battle cry that we need to be aware of the Scriptures. We need to be aware of what Christians have always believed, and we need to hold fast to that truth. And that's one of the reasons that in the ordination service that uh, we go through when we are ordained, when Justin and I were ordained to the priesthood, one of the things that you have to do is to swear your belief in the scriptures and that you will not teach anything that is not in accord with the scriptures and that you will retain and defend the doctrine, discipline, and worship of the church as they have been received from past generations. That is a strong vow. And if more clergy would keep that, we wouldn't be in some of the messes that we're in. So pride again, and the uniqueness of man made in God's image. This is one of the most important passages in this chapter. And now there's another thing you've got to learn, said the ape. I hear some of you are saying, I'm an ape. Well, I'm not. I am a man. Really? If I look like an ape, that's because I'm so very old, hundreds and hundreds of years old. And it's because I'm so old that I'm so wise. And it's because I'm so wise that I'm the only one Aslan is ever going to speak to. He can't be bothered talking to a lot of stupid animals. He'll tell me what you've got to do, and I'll tell the rest of you. And take my advice and see you do it in double quick time, for he doesn't mean to stand any nonsense. There was dead silence, except for the noise of a very young badger crying and its mother trying to make it keep quiet. Well, this is like that old story that we used to read in elementary school that's probably been banned. Uh, that's called The Emperor's New Clothes. And The Emperor's New Clothes it is perfectly obvious to everyone that the emperor is parading around with no clothes on at all. But everyone is just saying, oh, that's a lovely outfit. <laughs> and whenever you get to a place in a culture where there is objective reality in front of you, and that objective reality looks at you and speaks to you and says, I am X, whatever it might be, that is not what they are, you know that something is fundamentally wrong, fundamentally wrong. And part of the reason that that's wrong is this all comes back to pride. Because one of the things that you see in the Christian meta-narrative and in the Genesis accounts is that it is very clear that man was created. So if you are created, that means you are not the creator. You do not get to decide what you are. What you are is given in the way that God made you. And so this, this whole idea of pride comes in and says, I am my own creator. I can make myself be whatever I want. And if you don't like that, then you are bigoted and you are oppressing me and I'm no longer safe. And whether that is somebody wanting to be a furry or something else, there, there is just 
craziness behind this and is antithetical to the Christian understanding. And it doesn't mean that we should hate on those people. It means we should have deep compassion for them because they are so fundamentally misled. They don't know or understand that they were made by a loving God and made good and made in his image with agency and gifts and all of these things. So there's a lot in scripture about pride. Um, so here we go. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That's a big word. You don't want to, if you're a Christian, you don't want to be an abomination to the Lord. That is not, not a good thing. Uh, be assured, he will not go unpunished. And then St. Paul, Romans 12. If you haven't read Romans 12 in a while, I would just commend that whole chapter to you. Uh, it is full of rich truth. For by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And then this next part from the book of Job, if you've never studied the book of Job, Job is an underrated treasure. It is really a phenomenal book. If you get excited about wanting to study Job, I highly recommend Derek Kidner's Guide to Job. Um, it will change your life. Such good stuff, but just one little verse. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. I.e., to say things about God that are not true, to dishonor the truth about God that is expressed in the scripture, that is dangerous business because it says God's anger burns against them. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then from Psalm 8, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the seas, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, and over all the earth itself and every creature that crawls upon it. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And in these passages you see the beautiful way that God has made man, that he has created man a little lower than the angels and given him glory and given him dominion over the creatures and called him to be a steward of all creation. And the only thing out of all of creation that is made in God's image is man and woman. It says God created man and that he created the male and female in his image, and he saw that it was very good. And the sad thing is that there's nothing new under the sun. What we're experiencing today is just like in the Tower of Babel in Genesis, where people thought we don't need God, we're smarter without God, we can make our own way up to the heavens, we don't need any of this spiritual mumbo-jumbo, we're just going to do our own thing. 
And that is the pride that comes before a fall. But the sad thing is we are trading the glorious identity and destiny of the children of God, being children of the Father who loves us and made us, to just strike on our own and to be full of pride about how cool we are just in ourselves. And it's, it's such a tragic transaction of trading something that is eternally beautiful and priceless for something that is just um, ashes. So slavery, stealing, and tyranny. And this just gets worse. The ape just is on a tear in this chapter. And now here's another thing the ape went on, fitting a fresh nut into its cheek. So who's the ape always thinking of first? Himself. I hear some of the horses saying, let's hurry up and get this job of carting timber over as quickly as we can, and then we'll be free again. Well, you can get that idea out of your heads at once. And not only the horses either. Everybody who can work is going to be made to work in the future. Aslan has it all settled with the king of Kalerman, the Tisrock, as our dark-faced friends the Kalermines call him. All you horses and bulls and donkeys are to be sent down into Kalerman to work for your living, pulling and carrying the way horses and such do in other countries. And all you digging animals like moles and rabbits and dwarfs are going down to work in the Tisrock's mines. And no, 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 howled the beast. It can't be true. Aslan would never sell us into slavery to the king of Kalerman. None of that. Hold your noise, said the ape with a snarl. Who said anything about slavery? You won't be slaves. You'll be paid. Very good wages, too. That is to say, your pay will be paid into Aslan's treasury, and he will use it all for everybody's good. <laughs> then he glanced and almost winked at the chief Calermine. The Calermine bowed and replied in the pompous Calermine way, most sapient mouthpiece of Aslan, the Tisrock may he live forever, is wholly of one mind with your lordship in this judicious plan. Well, I'm not going to say this might sound familiar, but the, the whole idea that you trade your freedom in to go and slave and labor and all of your earnings are sent somewhere else and supposedly they're going to be used to take care of you, but it doesn't quite work out that way. Um, the ape is all about setting up a system that is fundamentally corrupt, that will oppress the people and will enrich him and his two or three friends that are on top. But the problem with this kind of tyranny is that tyranny often leads to rebellion because people will not put up with tyranny. But the scriptures have a lot to say about this. Listen to this from James. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, who, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And listen to what Jesus says he quotes this prophecy about them, uh, from Isaiah about the Messiah in his first public teaching. And this is what he says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's a familiar verse, but I want you to just look at the words that are in there. Liberty, liberty, those who are oppressed, liberty, liberty, those who are oppressed. This whole idea of freedom is integral to what it means to be a Christian and to follow Jesus. And that is why in our verse that we say at the beginning of every class, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And we're seeing that illustrated very clearly and starkly in this chapter. But that theme is going to keep on playing out through this book. So here we go. Freedom, insults, and tyranny. There, you see, said the ape, it's all arranged and all for your own good. We'll be able, with the money you earn, to make Narnia a country worth living in. There'll be oranges and bananas pouring in. Remember, the only animal in all of Narnia that can eat oranges and bananas is the ape. Oranges and bananas will be pouring in, and roads, and big cities, and schools, and offices, and whips, and muzzles, and saddles, and cages, and kennels, and prisons. Oh, everything. But we don't want all those things, said an old bear. We want to be free, and we want to hear Aslan speak himself. Now don't you start arguing, said the ape, for it's a thing I won't stand. I'm a man. You're only a fat, stupid old bear. What do you know about freedom? You think freedom means doing what you like. Well, you're wrong. That isn't true freedom. True freedom means doing what I tell you. Huh, grunted the bear and scratched its head. It found this sort of thing hard to understand, no doubt. So, from the scriptures in Romans. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. And then Lewis from God in the Dock. Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. So this idea of freedom is part and parcel of the Christian faith. It means to be following after Christ, to be following hard after Christ, and living into the glorious freedom of the sons of God. And what that means is that you don't participate in the works of darkness. What that means is that you try to avoid the sin of pride and that you try to avoid falling off the cliff on the other side of judging and berating and hating the people that are doing the oppression. One of the things I love about Lewis in one of his letters is he talks about as he's in the midst of being bombed by the Germans that he's still remembering Hitler and Stalin and his prayers every night 
even though he finds it often a struggle. And as a reminder that what sets Christianity apart from any other faith is Jesus' command to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I'm not saying that's easy, but it's something that we need to be more vocal about in the church because that should be the mark of the Christian to do that. Then the danger of theological innovation. I love this paragraph. Please, please, said the high voice of a woolly lamb who was so young that everyone was surprised he dared to speak at all. What is it now, said the ape, be quick. Please, said the lamb, I can't understand. What have we to do with the Calormenes? We belong to Aslan. They belong to Tash. They have a god called Tash. They say he has four arms and the head of a vulture. They kill men on his altar. I don't believe there's any such person as Tash. But if there was, how could Aslan be friends with him? All the animals cocked their heads sideways, and all their bright eyes flashed toward the ape. They knew it was the best question anyone had asked yet. The ape jumped up and spat at the lamb. Baby, he hissed, silly little bleeder. Go home to your mother and drink milk. What do you understand of such things? But you others, listen. Tash is only another name for Aslan. All that old idea of us being right and the Calormenes wrong is silly. We know better now. We're so much smarter than any other age. The Calormenes use different words, but we all mean the same thing. Tash and Aslan are only two different names for you-know-who. That's why there can never be any quarrel between them. Get that into your heads, you stupid brutes. Tash is Aslan. Aslan is Tash. Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods that I may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us then go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. And then from Romans, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And that whole idea of theological innovation we already talked about Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Whenever the Jesus seminar or some other group comes up and says, oh, the past 2,000 years of all the people that read the scriptures and followed Jesus, they were all wrong. They just were not as smart as we are today because they didn't have the internet. And 
now we know so much more than they did. And that part about that doctrine, that's crazy. We don't believe that anymore. Um, you need to uh, become enlightened and you need to get in step with us and you need to innovate and leave behind that old fusty theology and get on board with what is vibrant and virile and bold and innovative. Yeah, that never ends well. So then closing, courage and standing up for the truth. Up till now, the king and Jewel had said nothing. They were waiting until the ape should bid them speak, for they thought it was no use interrupting. But now as Tyrion looked around on the miserable faces of the Narnians and saw how they would all believe that Aslan and Tash were one and the same, he could bear it no longer. Ape, he cried with a great voice, you lie, you lie damnably. You lie like a calamine. You lie like an ape. He meant to go on and ask how the terrible god Tash, who fed on the blood of his people, could possibly be the same as the good lion by whose blood all Narnia was saved. If he had been allowed to speak, the rule of the ape might have ended that day. The beast might have seen the truth and thrown the ape down. Before he could say another word, two calamines struck him in the mouth with all their force, and a third from behind kicked his feet from under him. And as he fell, the ape squealed in rage and terror. Take him away, take him away, take him where he cannot hear us, nor we hear him. There tie him to a tree. I will, I mean, Aslan will do justice to him later. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then from the screw tape letters, Lewis says, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. We need courage. So just to close, um, the words of Psalm 8, and part of the reason that I think this is so significant is that what we see happening in this chapter is people selling the right of who they really are. And we are so involved in a culture right now that it's telling us over and over again that we're just human animals, that there's nothing special about being human, uh, that there is no God, that there is no image of God to be created in. But the wonder of what God says about us and about who God is is really different. So let's read these words from Psalm 8 together. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name 
in all the earth. Let us pray. O Lord, indeed, how majestic is your name in all the earth, and what glory there is in your creation, and what glory there is in the destiny that you call us to as your sons and daughters. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to trade that glorious freedom of the children of God for the massive pottage that our culture wants to give to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to test every spirit, to be wise in your word, to be full of love for our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. And Lord, we pray that you might send your Holy Spirit on all of us, that we might be found standing firm in the truth for which your son gave his life. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.